Well, take God's precious word today. Do you have one? Find 1 Peter chapter 4. It is, um, it's an overwhelming experience to be here on a Sunday and uh, to be able to walk out here. This is, uh, for me, this is somewhat sacred ground. I uh, was sitting over here a moment ago. I hadn't really thought much about it. I tried not to think too much about it, of uh, what it would be to stand here in this pulpit, but I when we were singing a little while ago, I got a glimpse a little bit of what it might have been as Moses was leading, and I'm not Moses, but as Moses, I've got gray hair like Moses, <laughs> but as Moses would have been leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, and uh, I don't know how many times they may have passed by where the burning bush experience took place, and uh, Moses knew what God had done in his life at that spot, that place, and this is a place where God um, did some work in my life, and he grew me, and he's still growing me. I'm a growing Christian. How many of you are still growing Christians, all right? And uh, this is a great part, and God used so many of you to, uh, to help me and forge me. Uh, I'm looking at some of, the, some of the older ladies. God used you to correct me. <laughs> Sometimes it wasn't constructive criticism. Uh, that happens in Baptist churches, right? <laughs> uh, but you fed me and added to the ministry, and I just see so many of you that I love so dearly, and I think, uh, I just think of, of so many memories flooded my, my soul. And I sat over here, and I, I prayed this morning while we were singing, while the choir was singing, and uh, just asked the Lord to forgive me uh, for, uh, for the things that I needed to be forgiven for in the time that I was here. Uh, areas that I should have done or could have done or uh, ought to have done and didn't do or did and shouldn't have done. Uh, but then I just rejoiced in all that God did and uh, thank the Lord for uh, his grace. And I tell you, it, this is a, a morning that makes me long for heaven. Uh, what it's going to be like when we get to heaven. Isn't it going to be great to be reunited? Now, some of you have no idea who I am. And that's awesome that this church has got, I look at so many new faces here. And uh, some of you I thought were new faces. I looked at Elena a little bit ago, and I thought, oh, my goodness, I, I'm, uh, there's a, I wonder who this, this young lady is. And then it, it was Elena. And I remember Elena, uh, you're not supposed to graduate from college right now. Uh, you're, supposed to be in the, in the, you're supposed to be a kid central upstairs. But, uh, man, I just look around, and Andrew and Bryce and all these, all these uh, young people who are now old people. And... Uh, <laughs> Young people that are growing beards, and, uh, and some of the guys, too, and it's amazing. <laughs> I tell people in Colorado, I said, man, listen, I pastored in some rough area down there in Mississippi. I said, one of our high school, man, I mean, listen, you go to, you go to some of these high school games, and, and kids on the team were Fang and Butch and, and uh, Rascal, and that was the cheerleaders, you know, <laughs> and, and then the football team came out. <laughs> But uh, anyway, it's just a joy. Pastor, thank you for letting me be here today, and I'm honored. I look forward to a good service tonight, God meeting with us and honoring the graduates tonight. First Peter chapter 4 in God's Word, and we're going to read a few verses today, so some of you need to maybe dust off your spectacles for a minute. You might get your Bible reading in for the week, and we're going to read just a few verses here, starting in verse 1. For as much then as Christ... hath suffered for us. 
Look at those words, suffered for us. He did not die for his own sins, he died for mine. And he died for yours, for as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, or the unsaved, when we walked in lasciviousness, which is just basically immorality. Lusts, that's desires, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Wherein they, the unsaved, think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead. Now don't misunderstand He's not saying that the gospel is preached to people who have already died. We don't do baptism for the dead. We're not preaching to dead. We don't pray for the dead. Once they're dead, they're gone. This is speaking about is preached to the dead, uh, those that are now dead. Speaking, the gospel was preached to the unsaved. The gospel came to the unsaved. Why? Look at verse 6. That they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. So... He's saying, he's saying two things. The gospel's been preached to the unsaved dead, but the gospel's also preached to those who are saved and have now died. And they were ridiculed by men while they were in the flesh, but now they live in the spirit with God. Uh, what Peter is doing here is he's drawing our attention to eternity. He's talking about a day when you're going to meet God. Both unsaved and saved are going to one day meet God. Listen to me, you're going to meet God one day. And then he says, in verse number 7, but the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch into prayer, and above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. What multitude of sins? <laughs> Just look around. These multitude of sins in this room. And use hospitality one to another without grudging, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. One of the greatest things about Christianity is Christianity is a free gift. You don't earn it, you don't buy it, you don't purchase it, you don't obtain it, you receive it. It's a gift. God gave us a gift of eternal life. But here's one of the great things that happened. When God gave you a gift, he gave a bunch of gifts with it. And God gave you a gift of his son. Then he gave gifts through his son to you so that God could make you a gift to the church. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Salvation is a gift that makes you a gift so you can give you back to the church. Some of you are white elephant gift. I've been to those secret Santa parties. We, we didn't want that gift. <laughs> I can say that here, right? You know, you, you, get, you get that, don't you? Okay. I, you, get my, you get that I'm just picking on you. That's okay. In Colorado, I say things like that, and everybody gets offended. So, man, you guys need to eat some fried chicken and lighten up a little bit, right? Fry something, sit down, and, and understand what it is to go into a sugar coma. If you don't go into a sugar coma every time you eat, you haven't ate, right? <laughs> I, I told people in Colorado, they said, man, what, what, what's going to happen with these Southerners, man, when they, when they really start to revolt? 
and things get really bad, what's going to happen down south? I said, don't worry, south is not going to rise again. I said, they have biscuits and gravy for breakfast. They had chicken and gravy for lunch. They had mashed potatoes and gravy and fried okra and gravy. They've been eating paper mache all day long. They're not getting off the couch, I promise you that. It just feels good to step outside and take a good breath in, and there's grease in the air. I like that. God gave you a gift of salvation to make you a gift. I want to draw your attention to one word, and then we're going to preach through this quickly. And it's not going to be a profound message. I don't really have any of those. It's going to be a simple truth that is very, very, very important for a very critical time in the history of the world. I call your attention to verse number two, and I want you to underline this phrase, that he should no longer live, that he no longer should live, now watch this phrase, the rest of his time. I want you to underline that phrase, the rest of his time. Peter had so much to say about time in this book. In chapter 1 and verse 5, if you want to follow along, you can flip back there. Chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Who are kept by the power of God through faith, ready to be revealed in uh, of un, uh, faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Look down in verse number 11. He says, Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify the old prophets when they were prophesying of Christ. And then he said in verse number 17, And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Verse number 20, he said, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. In chapter 4, we read it a moment ago in verse 2, that he should no longer live the rest of his time uh, in the lust of the, the lust of men, but to the will of God. Verse 3, for the time past of our lives may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. In verse 17 of chapter 4, for the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And then in chapter 5 and verse number 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you and do time. Peter was so enamored with time. And the reason for it is because in the very next the very next book, just a few months later, Peter writes the second epistle. And he, in that second epistle, Peter says, I don't have much time left in this earthly tabernacle. I'm about to put off this earthly tabernacle. My life is coming to an end. And when you come to, when you come to view eternity, you are arrested by time. And how fleeting it is. How short the time is. I had time here. I walked yesterday from the hotel and I walked up the road and, and I was out on Hardy Street up where 59 and, and, and 98 meet and I walked around up there and just kind of got out in s some sunlight and just walked and prayed and I looked, at, uh, I, I looked back over those, those neighborhoods on the other side of Best Buy and, and back in that way where, where C.R. Williams used to live. 
And Papa Schomeyer used to live. And I remember, I remember uh, when I first came here, going back and picking up C.R. Williams and driving out and witnessing and soul winning. And, and uh, I looked at some neighborhoods down the road where, uh, where uh, Geneva and uh, Marion Swagger used to live down there behind there in 98. I remember going over there and knocking a lot of those neighborhoods. And I just walked and I wept yesterday and I prayed. I said, God, forgive me for time that I wasted here. What did I do with the time that I had here? I, I thought I would be here forever. I thought I would be here for years. I thought I would be buried here. I thought that my life would end here. I remember taking a picture right down here, my first Wednesday night. My wife was so, uh, she wearing that pink outfit and my girls were so little and Juju was so, so I mean, her big old cheeks. And we took a picture right down here. I had, one, I had one patch of gray hair right here in the front, just a little bit. And we took that picture 15 years ago. The oldest daughter in that picture is married and going to have a baby. My middle daughter just graduated college. The youngest one is just about to graduate high school next week. I called my wife from the airport and I said, I'm just sitting here waiting on my plane and I'm contemplating my life. <laughs> our youngest daughter just graduated, our younger daughter graduates high school next week. Our middle daughter just graduated college last week. Our oldest daughter is going to give us a grandbaby. I'm married to a grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to my life? I mean... What will I do with the rest of my time? A man walked in my office not long ago and said, Pastor, I have stage four cancer. I have 30 days. What would you do, Pastor, with 30 days? I don't know if I have 30 minutes. I don't know if I have 30 years. I don't know how much time I have, but spend the rest of your time. What are you going to do with the rest of your time? You young people think you're going to live forever. What are you going to do with the rest of your time? What are you going to do with the rest of your time? This is the time for God's people to see life in view of eternity and ask the question, what will I do with the rest of my time? I, um, I came down here uh, last time for Brother Ed's funeral and preached Brother Ed's funeral and then had to fly right out and I went to a youth conference. I flew into Denver, went home, changed suitcases and, and flew out to a youth conference in Evansville, Indiana. I got in there, I preached that youth conference. Man, it was a, a, a wonderful conference. God blessed in so many ways and I preached my last session at nine o'clock on Saturday morning and I rushed to the Evansville airport to catch a flight. I was flying from Evansville to Detroit, Detroit to Denver. I was going to get to Denver at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday. It takes me about 30 minutes to get from the plane to my car uh, by shuttle. And then I can drive, drive about 55 minutes from the, from the parking lot to my house. I was going to be home by, by 545. And uh, I was going to spend Saturday evening with the family and all that. On the way to the airport in Evansville, I got a notification. Your plane uh, has a mechanical issue. And uh, it's going to be delayed. You can reroute your flight. So I looked, and I had two options. I could stay there until 9 o'clock that night and get into Colorado on, uh, on Sunday morning. Or I could take a flight out about an hour later than my original flight and go to Atlanta 
and then Atlanta into Denver, and I could get to Denver about 9 o'clock in the evening. So I chose that. I booked it right there in the car. Boom. Didn't even think about it. Just did it. I got to the airport. I got on the flight, and it was a small little plane. And uh, I looked across the way. I'm sitting in aisle 15A up against the wall. And uh, over in 14D, over on that wall, was a, was a guy who was a college rep who had been at the youth conference promoting their college, and he was sitting on that same plane. And he said, Brother Miller, what are you doing on this flight? And I said, well, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be in Detroit right now. And so we talked. I unbuckled my belt. The flight wasn't very full. I got over. I went and sat next to him, and we just chatted for a while. It was only a 45-minute flight or so. And if you've, if you've flown much, you'll notice that about 30 minutes out from landing, you'll feel the plane kind of slow, and they'll start that initial descent. And then a few minutes later, they say, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is the captain speaking. We've begun our initial descent. The flight attendants are going to prepare the cabin for, for arrival. And then they come in, seat backs up, seat belts buckled, lap trays up, and all that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, I could, I could say it by now. I, can, I memorized it. So I'm sitting over with him, and I feel the plane kind of slow down. And I said, hey, Seth, i got to move. I'm going to go back over to my seat. I put my belt on, put all this stuff away, because we're getting ready. We're going to land. Well, then we didn't go down. And we flew, and we flew, and we flew, and we flew. And I thought, well, we ought to be landing. About 30 minutes we should be landing. Well, 30 minutes, we're still flying. And the pilot came on. Ah, uh, folks. Uh, just a little update from the, flight, from, from the flight crew. As we began our initial descent into Atlanta, uh, we experienced a mechanical issue with the aircraft. Well, nobody wants to hear that. And he said, we've lost our flight control system. <clears throat> well, I mean, I'm not a pilot, but that seems to be a pretty big deal to control the flight because that's what we're doing right now is flying. I'm thinking, are, are we out of control, uh, folks? Uh, don't worry about it. What this just simply means is that we have no flaps and no way to slow down the aircraft. So we're going to be landing at a very high rate of speed. But once we get on the ground, everything's going to be fine. Don't be alarmed, but you will notice as we approach Atlanta that the runways will be uh, lined with emergency personnel. <laughs> Don't let that alarm you. It's just protocol. Okay, well, I'm already alarmed. <laughs> and I found out right then that if they dropped those oxygen masks, I was not going to be able to breathe normally. I was going to be, <laughs> I was already, I had the air sickness bag just hyperventilating in it. Uh, we're going to land and end up, and, and by the way, let me give you a weather forecast for Atlanta. Like, who cares about that? It's going to be 100 degrees when I die. Great. And he said, well, the, 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 air, the, the, the uh, forecast for Atlanta is uh, there are torrential rains. Oh, that's great. We're going to land at a high rate of speed on a wet runway. We're going to hydroplane right off to the Atlantic Ocean. I will tell you, I'm serious, after he said that, for about the first five minutes, I, I got, I, I, was, I was nervous. And everybody's wearing masks, so all you see is their eye. And I don't care what you do, when you just see people's eyes, you can, you can smile all you want, but if you just see the eyes, you can see fear in every eye. 
I looked across at this businessman, and he's looking at me, and he goes, well, this is new. And you could just see in his eyes, he's going, in his mind, he's going, ah, ah. The young guy in front of me who just got married, Seth, the rep, he looks back at me, and he goes, and I just gave him a thumbs up, like, here we go. The lady in front of me, she's about to lose it. I reached between the seat, and I said, hey, excuse me, ma'am, are you okay? And she said, no, I'm not okay. And I said, do you know Jesus? And she said, why do you ask that? I said, well, we might be meeting him in a minute. <laughs> I had a New Testament in my briefcase, so I slipped it through to her, and I said, find the book of John and start reading. I want to tell you about Jesus. And then I sat back, and I kind of got myself together, and I said, okay, Lord, here we go. I could be seeing you today. And I just started praying. I went back through my salvation. I knew I was saved. I pulled my phone out, and I just started going through pictures. I, 25 years I've been married to this beautiful woman. Lord, these have been incredible years, more than I deserve. Three beautiful girls. I just scrolled and scrolled and scrolled and scrolled and just rejoiced in the life that God had given me. Then I thought, if it was all over and I had no more days on this earth, What have I done? I've enjoyed so much from God. Accomplished some things for God. But then I thought of a more terrifying thought, and that is, what if I live? What if we live? What will I do with the rest of my time? Well, we lived. I'm here to tell you that. That pilot, he put that plane straight up in the air. We, we, when you come in on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a runway, when you're coming in for a landing, if you're on a normal plane and everything's working fine and they got a flight control system and you look out, you're still moving fast. But when you pop through those clouds and you're at the high rate of speed, you have no idea what 500 knots looks like at 100 feet. I mean, buildings are flying by, and I'm, I'm, I mean, it was, and then, and then all of a sudden that plane just, he just put that plane up in the air like this, and he kind of slowed down, and then we touched down, I mean beautifully. And out the window are all these fire trucks and ambulances, and he hit the ground, reversed those engines, and we took every bit of that runway to, to stop. And when we finally got stopped, everybody's cheering and praising God. And then we're getting off the plane, and the pilot's standing at the cockpit door, and he's like 15. <laughs> I walked by, and I said, how you doing, son? Where's the pilot? I want to shake his hand. He goes, oh, I'm the captain. I said, does your mom know? <laughs> but I thought, what are we going to do with the rest of our time? Peter's going to give us some things very quickly to do with the rest of your time. Let me give you four things, four attitudes every Christian should have. Verse number one, for as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. I guarantee you that in this room, if we counted up how many guns people own and how much ammunition is in our homes and safes and under our beds and in our cars and in our purses and in our canes or wherever we keep all that stuff, there's probably some loaded canes in here today. I mean, somebody one time said, Pastor, do you ever carry a gun when you preach? I said, nope. I said, well, what would you ever do if somebody started shooting? I said, I'm going out the back door. 
because the headlines of the paper in Hattiesburg are going to read the next day, gunman comes to church, 75 dead. Gunman never gets off a shot. Everybody's going to be shooting everybody in here. But if we counted up all the guns that are in this room today, I'll promise you that we have some guns. And we'll fight for our second dominion. But I want to ask you a question. Have you armed yourself? Have you armed yourself for the real fight? We're armed to the teeth for maybe some boogeyman out there somewhere that may come in. We arm ourselves for maybe some devolving of society and some revolution. And we'll arm ourselves for all that. But i got to tell you something. You've got a revolution going on in your heart that happens every single day. And many of us aren't armed for the war. Peter said, how do you want to spend the rest of your life? Number one, you better learn how to fight sin. Go to war with sin every day. And I'm not talking about the sin in someone else's life. I'm talking about the sin in your own heart. He said, fight, fight, arm yourselves. Christ suffered for sin. Now arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. I want to tell you, church, that your attitude is the weapon that God has given you. A wrong attitude is going to lead to defeat. But if you have the right outlook, it'll lead to the right outcome. And if a Christian will have the right attitude towards sin, he'll have victory in his life. You better learn to fight sin in your own life. It's easy to grow accustomed to sin. There might be some of us today that over the last few years you've allowed things to creep into your life and you've become more and more comfortable with things that you used to be against, things that you would have repulsed at maybe a few years ago. Now you, uh, now you just watch all the time, listen to all the time, speak all the time. It's easy to get comfortable with sin. And we're living in a world today where sin so abounds Sin so abounds that we get comfortable with the sin in our own life. I mean, the sin in the world is so egregious that our sin's not that bad. But I want to tell you something, friend. Sin needs to be destroyed, and it was destroyed in Christ, but you better arm yourself with the same mind for the rest of your time. If you want to know what attitude you ought to have for sin and how to cultivate the right attitude against sin, just look at what it did to Jesus. What attitude should I have to sin? Just go to Calvary and look at what sin did to Christ. And by the way, don't you think that Jesus came just to take you to heaven? He didn't come just to take you to heaven. He came to deal with your sin. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus came to deal with sin. When you look at what sin does, look to Calvary. Jesus taught the truth to the multitudes to expose sin. Jesus healed the crippled and the lame and the blind and the halt to reveal the consequences of sin. And then he went to Calvary to deal with the final judgment of sin. You look at his broken body on that cross and that's what sin does. If you want to arm yourself against sin and you want to learn to fight sin, not only look to Jesus, but look to the heart of God. Look at verse number two, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. And tell, let me tell you something, believer. You have a decision to make with the rest of your time. Are you going to live the rest of your time to your desire, or are you going to live the rest of your time to God's desire? Are you going to follow your own heart, or are you going to follow God's heart? Are you going to do your own will, or are you going to do God's will? 
If the church of America in 2021, we stand at a crossroad today whether we are going to follow the culture or we're going to follow Christ. And God's people need to see that there is a real thing in this world called sin. And by the way, the only sin in our society today is, is calling sin, sin. I mean, we, we talk about being dysfunctional. We talk about issues. We talk about psychological problems. We talk about mental health. We talk about all kinds of things, but we never deal with sin. And the attitude that we ought to have towards sin is to fight it because of what it did to Jesus and because of what it does to the heart of God. I either have to follow my own heart, which is deceitful and desperately wicked, or follow the heart of God, the will of God, the will of God. You say, what is the will of God, Pastor? The will of God is everything God's heart can desire for you. Everything the loving heart of God can desire for you, everything that the beautiful mind of God can think up for you, everything that the powerful hand of God can create for you, that's the will of God. The will of God is everything you would want for your life if you were smart enough to want it. Every one of you young people graduating school, you better, tell, you better listen to this. God has a plan for your life, and God's plan for your life is much more than your plan for your life. And you've got a decision today to follow your own heart or to follow the will of God. You say, well, what if the will of God takes me away? It's okay. God will take you where he wants you. I know firsthand of following the will of God through difficult times. One of my favorite songs, we sang it this morning, about following the Lord, his will, walking in his will. You see, but, but I want to know what God's going to do in my life. Listen to me, friend. Listen to me. We don't live by explanations. We live by promises. And we cast ourselves on the promise of God and knowing that God is good. If you want the right attitude towards sin, look to Calvary. You want the right attitude sin, uh, towards sin, look at the heart of God. If you want the right attitude towards sin, look at your past life. For the time past of our life may have sufficed us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness and lust and excess of wine and revelings. Do you not remember the things which we are now ashamed? Do you remember what life used to be before you got saved? The scars and the heartache and the wounds that the old life did. Then we met Jesus and he made all things new. And if you want to fight sin and you want to have the right attitude towards sin, look what it did in our past life. Let me give you the second attitude. I said, I tell you right, church, listen to me, we don't have much time. So what are we going to do the rest of our time? Well, we're going to fight sin. And not their sin, not her sin, not his sin, my sin. Number two, look at verse four. Wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of right, speaking evil of you. Who should give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick, that's the, the living and the dead. Uh, you need to, I'll tell you what you need to do, if you're gonna, how you're going to spend the rest of your life. Feel sorry for the lost. Feel sorry for the lost. God pity the Christian church who is in, engaged in warfare and insults with lost people. We get into Twitter wars and Facebook posts and we get into all kinds of things where we are arguing with unsaved people over things that do not matter. We spend more time trying to convince the lost and win them to our candidate than we do to winning them to Christ. 
We spend more time trying to persuade people to our political party than we do to bring them the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the lost people, look at verse number, uh, this is amazing to me. This is amazing to me. In verse 4, they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot. You got saved, and after you got saved, they think you lost your mind. You know, the world does not think twice about somebody messing up their life. They don't think twice about somebody wrecking their body and piercing it up and, and, and drugging it up and putting toxins in it. They don't think twice about somebody destroying their own home and broken homes. That's all normal to them. But you let a drunkard get right with God and start going to church every week and they think he's crazy. He got religion. He lost his mind. You let a drug addict get free and get clean and they think he's, something's wrong with that guy. Well, yeah, there is something wrong with him. He got Jesus. Festus looked at Paul in Acts chapter 26 and said, thou art mad. You're a nut, Paul. Yeah, but I'm screwed to the right bolt. <laughs> they looked at Jesus in Mark 3 and said, Jesus, you're beside yourself. You're insane. You let people start getting their lives in order. I mean, in, in the world that we live in today, you let a home fall apart and little kids go fatherless and you let, you let marriages be destroyed and people run in adultery and that's normal business in the world today. But you let that family start going to church and getting counseling and get under the word of God and the husbands start loving their wives and wives start loving their husbands and children start growing in the admonition of the Lord and they think you lost your ever-loving mind. And instead of having an angry attitude toward the unsaved, you got to remember they're lost. They're dead. Listen to me, you young people. Don't you envy the world. Don't envy their lifestyle. Pity them. Don't argue with them. Pray for them. Don't you remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, they're blind. Their understanding is darkened. They can't understand God. They don't know anything spiritual. They don't know, they don't know anything about right and wrong. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. Let me give you number three. Look at verse number seven. I told you to fight sin and feel sorry for the loss, but look at verse number seven. But the end of all things is at hand. And all God's people said, amen and amen. But ye be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Let me tell you what you should be doing today. How to spend the rest of your time. You better learn to spend the rest of your time pitying the lost and you better spend the rest of your time fighting sin in your own life and you better spend the rest of your time looking for Jesus. <laughs> You know what's happened through COVID, Pastor? More Christians are looking for the Antichrist. We're, we're looking for the mark of the beast. I don't know how many times you've been asked this question. Is the vaccine the mark of the beast? No, it's an experimental drug. Had a lady the other day say, Pastor, are you going to get the vaccine? No. Well, why not? Well, I'm not old enough to get it. Maybe after my first grandson is born, I'll, maybe then I'll do it. I'm, I'm in the percentile of people that it's, it's not, well, what about other people? What about, well, do you have, did you get the flu shot last year? I mean, I'm, I'm getting into bad territory right now, I know. It's in my church too, man. I mean, everybody just, we'll get to that in a second. Unbelievable, we've lost our ever-loving minds. We got to be careful and we got to be, these things are real. We've buried people. We've loved people. We, I, we, I get all that. But I'm just telling you, Christians are so full of fear. And now we're full of anger. 
and we're super sensitive. I mean, so I'm just telling you right now, some of you, and I have a little liberty right now, but some of you are a little upset right now with what I just said. <laughs> when they said, well, I've done my research. I said, lady, you are the research. <laughs> and here's the thing. Like, I, I've encouraged a lot of our people to get it. You need to get it. You're old enough. You're in an age group. Get it. It's going to help you. At least nothing more than it's going to help you. It's going to help you in your, in your mind, whatever. I'm not giving out medical advice. I'm not a doctor. I mean, people call me Dr. Miller. I'm not even a nurse. I, I mean, I shouldn't even be saying anything. I'm just telling you the attitudes of the world, and we have to navigate the alligators and all of these things. And you know why? People are looking, people in the church are looking for the Antichrist. We've never been told one time to look for the Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus. I'm looking for the Christ. And the Bible tells us, listen to me, and here we go. The Bible's going to tell you to be sober-minded. When you look for Jesus, look what he said in verse 7. He said, Wherein, he said uh, for the end of all things is at hand, be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Now that word sober means to be, <laughs> I love this word. I'm going to read exactly what the word means. It means to keep a steady, clear mind. In other words, to be sober-minded means to be clear-minded. Uncloud everything else from the world, from your own self and everybody else, all the opinions of the world, and get in God's Word and find out what God says. Let the mind of Christ be in you. You don't need my mind. I don't need your mind. We need His mind. And he said, be sober-minded. I love it. It means it has the idea. The opposite of being sober-minded is to be frenzy-minded. It's to, be, it's to be stressed out. In, in, today's, in today's vernacular, if I could, if I could impose my own, my own translation for just a moment, which I'm not intending to do, but this is what Peter was saying. Hey, the end of all things is at hand. Chill out. And learn to keep your head while everybody else is losing theirs. Somebody's got to keep their mind when the world is losing its mind. It's interesting to know that 10 times in the pastoral epistles, the apostle Paul tells us to be sober-minded. He said it's a requirement for the pastor. We don't need frenzy-minded, scatter-minded, fearful, easily tossed to and fro, leading and guiding. And by the way, it's also a requirement for the church member. You remember, you remember the demoniac in Mark chapter 5 who was naked and wounded and chained and in the tombs? You remember that guy? Remember that guy? You ever read that story? And then Jesus, I mean, they've tried everything. They chained him. They drugged him. They did everything they could to help this guy. And they couldn't help him. And then Jesus showed up. And the Bible said about that maniac that he was seated, he was clothed, and he was in his right mind. It's amazing what happens when Jesus saves you. He puts you in your right mind. And he said, now, Peter said, now, you better keep that mind. You see, you know, there's only three types of people in the world today. There are those who are absolutely afraid. There are those who don't know enough to be afraid. And then there's those of us who know the Bible. <laughs> and if you know the Bible, you just keep your head about you. You know, we get carried away with all this prophecy stuff and conspiracy theories. Somebody asked me the other day, Pastor, do you believe any of these conspiracy theories? Well, of course. I mean, you think your government's batting a thousand? I don't believe all of them, but I mean, some of them got to be true. I mean, there's some crazy people running this thing. 
But see, I look beyond the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, all the other nonsense. Look beyond all of that stuff and see into the darkness of the rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. There is a conspirator. His name's Satan. He's the prince of this world. And listen to me carefully as a Christian. I don't have to go down the rabbit holes of figuring out what's wrong with all these things and what they're all really up to. Let me tell you what they're all really up to. No good. But let me tell you what Jesus is up to. Saving souls. Pastor, what's the world coming to? Jesus. It's coming to him. And they're going to kneel before him and they're going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We're looking for Jesus. And here we go. Here's the last one. Look at verse number eight. And above all things, and this is now this is the most important, because you won't fight sin in your own life if you don't have this. You, you won't feel sorry for the lost if you don't have this. You won't be looking for Jesus if you don't have this. And here's the above all things. Have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity covereth the multitude of sins. You know what our rest of our time should be? Loving each other. Pastor, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? I'm going to fight sin. I'm going to feel sorry for the lost. I'm going to look for Jesus. And I'm going to love the saints. <laughs> That's what we're going to do with the rest of our time. Do you know that loving the saints is the most important thing? Above all things. Love the saints. You see, let me tell you something. You'll never fight sin in your own life until you learn what your sin does to me. No man's an island. No man sins to himself. No man lives to himself. We're all sinners, and our sin affects everyone else. You can't just sin alone in the dark. You say, well, it's a victimless crime. There's no victimless crime in sin. Sin destroys you. Sin destroys your family. Sin destroys the church. And listen, if I'm going to love you with all my heart, and I'm going to love you fervently, I've got to battle sin in my own life. You see, love, listen to this, love is the crown jewel of the church. It's the crown jewel of the church. It's the badge of the believer. It's the birthmark of a child of God. Jesus said here, I'm going to give you a new commandment, John 13. I'm going to give you a new commandment that you love one another. And hereby shall all men know that you're my disciples when you love one another. Yeah, the world's out there tearing each other up. I mean, God forbid your mask comes down over your nose. God forbid you buy yourself in a car wearing a mask alone. I mean, in Colorado, Juju and I, we were, counting, we were counting people. We would just count crazy things we'd see every day on the way to school. And we saw this guy one time. He was wearing like a hazmat suit. I'm not kidding you. He had a hazmat suit on. He had, he had masks wrapped around it. Like, I don't know how many. Like, I don't know how that guy was getting oxygen. He had a face shield on, he had gloves on, and then, and by himself in the car. And then over every one of his air vents, he had a mask taped over it. 
I saw a guy on a motorcycle doing 90 on the interstate. Flew by me. No helmet. Mask. Like, what are you thinking? You're going to run into a flock of COVID? Like, they're like little gnats out there on the interstate. I mean, tell you. I mean, listen. People fight over should you wear it, should you not wear it. Should we stand on the arrow or should we not? You know, you're standing on the arrow. I'm six feet from that guy, six feet from that guy, and 30 inches from, or like two inches from this guy and that guy. You know, because it doesn't move vertical. It only moves. <laughs> and you know, I mean, it, it's contactless, contactless drive through Somebody had to touch it. Somewhere in there, somebody put their hand on my burger. I mean, they didn't have a magic wand to float it into the container. I mean, I know they put it on a tray to hand it to you to make me feel better, but somebody had to put that stuff in the bag. Somebody touched the bag to put it on the tray. Just hand me the bag. Just give it to me. Man, I was in Target not long ago, and a guy standing there at the other end of the aisle, and we're looking at each other, and he was looking at me. He was giving me the stink eye because the arrow on the floor, I went the wrong way. I didn't know it. I thought they were suggestions. <laughs> and I needed something on this end of the aisle. I didn't, I didn't have to go all the way down. I just, need, I just stepped into the aisle. And he, <laughs> I'm 30 feet from him. He's got a mask. Well, when he turned his head, something dislodged, and he had to sneeze. And he sneezed into his mask. <laughs> and, you know, that's like setting off a dirty bomb. He looked at me, and he went just like this. He snapped his mask off, turned it around, <laughs> and put it back on. I'm like, you're a super spreader, man. <laughs> I'm just telling you the world is at each other's throats and there are powers that be and it has nothing to do with what they really believe they want us to become tribal this group by the color of their skin this group over here by their sexual orientation this group over here by, the, by this and this group and that group and this oppressed and that oppressed and that oppressed and this oppressed and all the oppressed we're all oppressed there's a Congress. We're all oppressed. You know, in Colorado, we see herds of elk and schools of fish. Anybody know what a group of monkeys is called? Congress. It's true. It's very true. It's the literal term. It's a Congress. I mean, and that's what we have today. And we're all oppressed. And man, I'm telling you, people fight. Am I right, Pastor? In the church. Do you know how many opinions are in this place? Do you know what he has to go through? Do you know what COVID did to him? Listen, I wasn't a grandpa before COVID. COVID aged me. It was so stressful, I came out of grandpa. I went into it a young man. Hereby shall all the world know that you're my disciples when you love one another. Peter's writing this to people who are suffering, especially at times of suffering. You have love one for another. And he tells you how to do it, fervently. That word fervent doesn't just mean a little bit. It has the idea of an athlete stretching out at the very end of the race to win, and he's stretching forward to the finish line. He is pushing himself to the very last ounce of strength to get across the line, fervently. But this isn't easy. 
This isn't love that comes from the feeling. It's a love that comes from the will. And let me tell you why many people don't love this way in the church. Because this love covers sin. When you love one another, it covers sin. You know, we don't like to cover other people's sin. We like to talk about it. You let somebody misstep and we talk about it. And sometimes we even do it real spiritual. We act as though it's a prayer request in our Sunday school class. Hey, I don't know if y'all heard. But we need to be in prayer for her. Let me tell you what she did. Bless her heart. Well, there was no prayer request there. It was just telling news. Love covers sin. Now, I didn't condone it. It doesn't condone it and sweep it under the rug. It deals with it. Ham saw his father in sin and his nakedness, and he mocked him and told others about it. But his two other boys went in with a coat on their shoulders and went in backwards and covered their father's shame and tried to restore him. They dealt with it. Do you love each other like that? This love covers, but I want to tell you something. This love costs. Use hospitality one to another. Open your home. Give. Open your wallet. Be there to meet people's needs. And this love cares. Oh, I love it. It cares. It comes to the church ready to serve. It doesn't come to a church for what it gets out of it. It comes to church for what it can give it. Every man's received the gift. Even so, minister the same one to another. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Let me ask you a question. What kind of a gift are you to the church? Hey, I'm done. I'm done. But this is not the day and age for Lone Ranger Christians. Jesus established a church. And he said, I'm going to baptize you by one spirit into one body, and you'll become members one of another with one head, and that's Jesus. And you're a member of the body, and you're to serve one another. And we're not to complain, well, I'm the hand, and this is the foot, and I want to be the foot, and I want that job, and I, why did they give that job to that person, and why, listen to me, all that goes out of the way. God, I'm here to do your will. Make me a gift to this church. Listen, I've said it a thousand times. If you walk into this church and you want to find fault, you'll find it. But if you want to find Jesus, you'll find him too. In this day and age, at this hour, we need churches that know how to fervently love one another. What will you do with your last time? Are you going to spend your last time fighting with each other or fussing or bickering in the church? Or are you going to spend your last time loving each other, embracing each other? You say, well, I don't agree with them on these certain issues. Okay, do you agree about them with Jesus? Then just talk about him. <laughs> do you agree about the Bible? you agree about salvation? you agree about God's goodness and his grace? And talk about that. Let's talk about Jesus. What are you going to do with your last time? Fight some sin. Feel... Feel pity for the lost and try to win them to Christ. And be looking for Jesus every day. He could come today. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Jesus is coming again. Father, I thank you today.